You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 8th of November. And on the programme today, 18 months after they were legalised in the UAE, we discussed the value of internships for teens. We heard one particularly heartwarming story from a Dubai student who grew up in the slums of Bangladesh, but she's now balancing her studies with an internship at Genie Recruitment right here in the UAE. Plus, we also heard from her boss, Nikki Wilson. And with one year to go until the US election, one of the leading candidates, Donald Trump, is on trial. We discussed the impact of that trial on the upcoming vote with US political analyst Ari Kovler. Plus, we had a bit of a theme around living for longer on the show today. We caught up with an expert oncologist after a breast cancer drug previously used to treat the disease was licensed to prevent it with excellent results. Dr. Deborah Mukherjee joined us on the show. And longevity medicine is big business. The Bank of America recently suggested that the industry is already worth 110 billion US dollars and it's growing. But how can we be sure that it benefits not just the tech billionaires, but the masses? We spoke to Lisa Ireland, the president and CEO of the not-for-profit Longevity Science Foundation. And British royal Prince William has been handing out million-dollar prizes as part of his Earthshot Awards for climate innovators. We caught up with a few of the winners and found out why there's a link to the UAE. Plus, Chris McCarty had all our latest sporting headlines. Yeah, welcome back to the agenda. As ever, starting the programme uh, with a bit of a question for you. Um, did you do an internship? A bit of work experience before you started your job? I would love to hear about how that went for you, how big a deal it was. I probably worked, if you add it all up, I reckon I've worked for a year for free. Um, getting into radio is really difficult. So you have to do loads and loads of work experience from really early on. So I did my first stint, I reckon, when I was 17 or 18. Um, yeah, it was it was in between university, in, in between school and university. And then I all the way through my university days, I was doing internships, often on the sort of breakfast show. So I get up really early in the morning, do the breakfast show, and then go to my lectures afterwards. Unpaid, of course. <laughs> It's always unpaid when you want to work in a fun industry. But in other industries, and certainly here in the UAE, internships are now legal. It's been 18 months now since even 15-year-olds could do internships. And they are often paid here. If you can get one, though, I don't think very many companies are offering internships. We don't offer them here at ARN, sadly. And as a consequence... I get the impression that even though it's legal, there aren't very many teenagers out there applying for these part-time work permits. Um, and you can get those only if you continue with your studies. No one's suggesting that children are allowed to leave school before 18. Um, but yes, I'd love to hear from you if you've managed to get one, if one of your children has managed to get uh, an internship and whether or not that sticky question, whether or not they're getting paid. So 4001 if you want to join the conversation or you can WhatsApp me for free 04871 But in good news, we have heard of one really particularly heartwarming story involving a young girl 
who grew up in the slums of Bangladesh. Now, Chadney Akhtar came to Dubai under a scholarship programme that was organised by the Dubai-based philanthropist Maria Konshikau. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think I'm probably not. Anyway, her charity, the Maria Christina Foundation, organises schooling in the slums of Bangladesh. And so far, Maria has helped over 100 families and more than 600 children get an education. Now, Chadney was one of those children and she continues to strive even now she's settled in Dubai and she started an internship recently at Genie Recruitment. Now I spoke to her earlier and she talked me through her story. Before coming to UAE I was in Bangladesh and I met Maria, Maria Consal in 2007 maybe when I was like one or two years I don't remember. So I have an elder sister, his name is Taramuni. So Taramuni and my mother, our family, met Maria. And she was a cabin crew. And she flew to Bangladesh and she found families and kids from the slums. And she started helping them. And then she started giving them education, building a school, nursery, primary education, and like everything that a person can imagine to having in the slums, right? And then she made us like dreaming big and like making us believe like you can achieve your dreams. You can believe anything and you can achieve it. So from there, we started getting education, primary education, secondary education. And then her second dream was like bringing the kids to Dubai and giving them better opportunities, like giving them better education. Because in Bangladesh as well, when we get education in, in a renowned school, of course, some schools also differentiate between the rich kids and, you know, the kids from the slums. So that wasn't liked by Maria, of course, because she always thought if I had children, I would not treat them like differently. I would have to treat them with better education, better opportunities, right? So she always thought that and giving us better opportunities everywhere. So then in 2019, she had like seven kids in Dubai and they got a scholarship from Athena Education. So it was also the Islam Kingler School. So they had to went back because the mothers weren't here. So they went back and then we came with the families with our single moms. And then we started staying here. It's been three years now going to school and my sister is there as well. My mother is working here in a school and she have her own studio apartment her own bank account, like everything. Literally, she's very independent now. My goodness me. So your life has really changed over the last few years. It must have been an extraordinary experience to move here to Dubai. And so obviously, you're studying, you've been here for a few years, you're doing really well at school. But how did you end up doing an internship? I did like two other internships in a dental clinic and one in a lingerie shop so it was in my summer vacation so like after a while Maria like she saw a post in LinkedIn about junior recruitment they are hiring like student interns to give some experience about a little bit of recruitment so it was very interesting when she saw that because I'm like always like any opportunities I'm open to it so she told me Chadni this is a great opportunity why don't you apply or see how it goes and then I contacted Nikki and she was very lovely. <laughs> and then she immediately replied and I sent her my CV and she thought, okay, let's uh, continue with two month internship. And then I 
came to Ginny and loved the environment, of course. And it's very different than the other internship I did. It's other internship. They were like giving me tasks, but here, like, I want to learn. I am going to people and asking them questions. So it's very different and I like it here. I have to admit, so often the internships that people do, you just end up making tea and coffee for people or or doing the photocopying, for example. Certainly that's what mm. my first internships were when I was a teenager. Is it slightly different for you at Genie? Are you more engaged with the workflow? Yes, yes. That's what I liked here most. The resources are there doing their work and anytime they need help, they just give me a task, a random task sometimes, and I enjoy doing it. How are you fitting it around your schoolwork? So I'm going to Harriet Watt University. Oh, wow. I thought because you were 17, you were still at school, but you're now at university. I'm doing my foundation year. So now I'm doing the agency program in engineering. So for bachelor, I haven't thought yet, like which department I'm going <laughs> to go with, but probably engineering. And what I'm really uh, interested to hear about is obviously you have an extraordinary story. And I'm thrilled to be telling that on the radio. But what's also very interesting is that you found internships to do. And I think that a lot of students here in the UAE and a lot of their parents think that it's very difficult to find internships. And yet you're already on your third. So what would you recommend if people and students and parents want to get involved? Where would you recommend they look for internships? I would recommend LinkedIn maybe because, you know, there are lots of online part-time jobs, internship that the students can do like one hour a day, two hours a day. So it's very useful to get experience. And also when we have the bachelor degree and looking for jobs, freshers and have no experience, it's very hard to get in. So yeah, part-time or student internship is very useful and important, I guess. Do you get paid for your internship? Obviously, the work experience is brilliant, but do you get a per diem of any sort as well? Of course, I get a really good pay. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, I'm wow. happy because all fits. <laughs> That's a big deal. I mean, when I was doing internships, we didn't get paid. I must have worked for about six months for free for various radio stations when I was growing up. And how important is that when it comes to balancing your studies and your work? How important is it that the internship is paid? I have four days university, one day off. So Tuesdays, full day off. So I come here in the office and work full day. And Friday, I have only one class after 11. So I come to the office at 12. So I work half day. So it's quite balancing. Like I have my works and I have my studies and I have weekends to like have fun, go out with friends or family. So it's quite balanced. And yeah, I like, like my life like this, you know, like you have some work to do, not to like scroll social media, like you have some responsibilities to do and learn from there. So yeah, it's all good. Obviously, people would jump at the opportunity to move to Dubai, to live here, to go to school here, to go to university here. But do you ever miss home? Do you miss family and friends that you've left back in Bangladesh as well? I miss home because I was there for 15 years, right? But my mother is here, my sister is here. So about families, yeah, I have my families here. But yeah, anytime like in the uh, December in Christmas vacation or summer vacation, 
I would like to go back and see the culture, how it's changed, you know, over a few years. Chadney, actor there, 17. She grew up in the slums of Bangladesh. And uh, thank you to, thanks to Maria Conchisau uh, and her foundation. She won a scholarship here in the UAE and is now studying at university. Only 17 years old. I think she puts the rest of us to shame. Absolutely extraordinary young woman there. And uh, amazing to talk to her here on the agenda. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yes, welcome back to The Agenda. We're discussing internships on the programme today, in part because about 18 months ago, teenagers aged 15 to 18 were finally legally allowed to get internships here in the UAE. But I think the reality is that they are very hard to come by. Uh, I've been asking you guys to share your memories of internships that you've done. Uh, Naveen, thank you very much for your message. Naveen says, I got into a very competitive investment bank internship program in my second year at uni. And after 10 weeks of a very well-paid internship, they offered most of us a a job on the graduate program. So during my final year at uni, I could just focus on my studies, securing the knowledge that I had a job lined up and and you know, when I finish. 20 years later, and I'm still at the same bank. Naveen, that is a very encouraging message for anyone who's looking to go and get themselves an internship. Now, of course, like I said, it's not always that easy. Uh, and we've just heard that there are some companies that are offering opportunities. One of them is Genie Recruitment. And as we just heard, they hired Dubai student Chadney Axer. Now, she originally grew up in the Bangladeshi slums before moving to the UAE on a scholarship. And I'm delighted to say I'm now joined in the studio by her boss, the managing director of Genie Recruitment. Nikki, uh, you are doing good work over there with your internship programme. Thank you. And I imagine hiring Chadney was a sort of no-brainer from your perspective. No-brainer, as soon as I got the message from Shadney, I'd been aware of her and her background and I know Maria as well. So absolutely, I was like, when do you want to start? <laughs> but how long have you been doing this internship programme at Genie? So we um, started internships from day one, um, literally from day one of operation um, over six years ago. And even when we didn't have an office, um, I've always seen the importance of, it, of having interns. And, you know, I think that we learn quite a lot from the, the interns as well and it always has been quite a big thing as part of Genie. But that's so interesting you did it right as a as a startup because we just heard from Chadney that you pay your interns and Chadney described it as paid well. Paid well, yeah. Yes. I've always paid the interns even from day one, even when we bootstrapped because I think it's really important to give a lot of like the youth, you know, that experience of here's some money, you know, what are you going to do with it? And and it's, it's a part of the responsibility. It's not just about getting the job. It's like you're going to get paid to do this work. And, you know, um, it's, it's a lot about development of them into adult adulthood as well. Where do you find them? everywhere <laughs> so I'm very big on I'm, I'm looking for them but also I really love the interns that find me I'm not difficult to find you know I'm a recruiter I'm all over LinkedIn all over the communities um, but when people actually reach out to me and ask for an internship it's, it's very rare that I say no Okay, so Chadney is obviously one of the good ones. Uh, she must be good because you've invited her to stay with you for longer yes. but I imagine you have had bad interns as well yes we've had a a few bad interns and 
You're going to have to talk me through their behaviour because we all want to hear it. I mean, oh, where do I even begin? I've had some that have fallen asleep in the office. Uh, why? <laughs> How? I don't know. We're quite a noisy office. You know, there's what, a lot just head on. on the desk? Well, they just fall asleep on the, the sofa sometimes. And I don't know where this comes from, really. Um, you know, and then I've had others that are just staring on their phone, playing on TikTok, um, watching Netflix. This is the type of intern that... I mean, you know, we shake our heads and we laugh about it because it will never stop me taking on interns. It doesn't put me off. It doesn't. Because honestly, you just need a few of those like diamonds in the rough and it changes your perspective completely. So what makes a good intern? So rather than obviously falling asleep. (laughs) So that's the sort of that's the that's the ground zero. Uh, How about about, like your your eight, your nine out of ten? Yeah, the great interns are just really proactive, ask loads of questions. You know, they really want to learn they want to get involved and you don't always have to push them or or give them loads of tasks because our internships they're definitely like higher level you know we get them to do recruitment we get them resourcing learning these kind of skills and it's probably not typical of what people think of as an internship but I'm not going to give those responsibilities if someone's you know not showing that they're that interested or falling asleep on the job you know it's not ideal but um much as we'd all love to occasionally (laughs) you can imagine if I just drifted off now yeah imagine imagine (laughs) um but do they add value in the long term because what you're describing to me there is yes you get them to do stuff but you are paying them and there is a certain I mean a huge amount of teaching going on there so they have to you know they have to go above and beyond these kids in order to pay you back effectively Kind of, but I think that from my side, the reason we take on interns is so that we, you know, are constantly learning, you know, understanding actually there might be something that an intern can teach us or maybe, you know, they can support us with different things or just bring different ideas to the table. It's not always actually about can they become a recruiter, you know, and uh, we've definitely placed many in, in different jobs and I actually really identify the interns as to which industry they should go into and then I might lead them on that course, you know, and I think that's really important because that's something that's missing, um, you know, with a lot of internships, like we don't get, I don't think any of my interns have ever made a cup of tea, <laughs> you know, it's not that kind of vibe, you know, um, they come in and we kind of assess their skills, maybe some people get really, you know, involved on the event side or they really like being creative then I'm like you know maybe you should consider marketing like or go down this route so the internships it's not necessarily always about what we get I really want to actually give them something back yeah I mean what you're doing is amazing it it really I mean I can imagine if I'd come when I was coming through the the sort of industry if I'd met someone like you it would have felt like I had a real sort of mentor and that is properly life-changing for many students and and hopefully will be as well uh, for Chadney Do you think other people in your industry are doing the same thing? Maybe not to the level that I do it. You know, I'm quite hands-on with the interns. Um, It's my passion. You know, I really love coaching people. I love to see the younger ones. And, you know, we do laugh about the kind of things that happen sometimes with the interns. But, you know, it is all part of the learning process. What could we do maybe for these ones that, like, fall asleep or you know is there do I need to, a task maybe list, they maybe. need to see a doctor for <laughs> yeah, narcolepsy maybe also, for example you know like this kind of vibe but um no it's 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 a lot of the the learning from both sides I think that's super important and I think more businesses should really consider you know taking on interns um you know because you can learn a lot from them
Oh, honestly, Nikki, it's been great to have you join us on the agenda. Thank you very Thank you. much indeed. You've just been listening to the voice of Nikki Wilson, who's the Managing Director of Genie Recruitment and has run internships programmes since day one. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Uh, There is exactly one year to go until the next US election. And new polling is suggesting that Donald Trump is leading the field. That's research by CNN. And they say that were a hypothetical rerun of the 2020 election to be held now, Trump would lead President Joe Biden by 49% to 45%. That is after separate polling earlier this week gave Mr. Trump the lead in five key swing states. Now, obviously, what makes this particularly interesting and intriguing is that it comes in a week in which Trump, obviously leading candidate for the Republican Party nomination, has been on trial. The ex-US president has taken the stand, accused of inflating the value of his property empire in order to secure favourable rates on loans. Speaking just before his appearance, Mr Trump claimed his properties were, in fact, vastly undervalued. This is really election interference. It's all over. This trial is ridiculous. The numbers are much greater than on the financial statement. And we've already proven that. They said Mar-a-Lago's worth $18 million. Mar-a-Lago's worth anywhere from probably 50 to 100 times more than that. Now, while on the witness stand, he spent almost four hours. He clashed with the judge. He disputed claims that he deceived banks and he also aired his grievances with the case. But but what impact is this trial and the other cases against Donald Trump likely to have on his presidential campaign? Let's find out with US political analyst Ari Kovler, who joins me now on Teams. Ari, what do you make of that poll out this morning that shows that Donald Trump is doing really rather well? Well, well, as you noted, it's one of now in quite a number of polls all showing pretty much the same picture um, that um, if the election were to be held today and the candidates were Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it looks like Donald Trump would win and win rather comfortably, um, which um, for many people is a bit of a head scratcher. In these head to heads, you know, don't always flip around the same way. Same two candidates that we had in 2020. Um, but Trump is leading in a number of key groups, and, and that, that is what the poll suggests at the moment. Of course, elections are a year away, and a lot still can change. Well, yeah, I mean, officially, Donald Trump isn't even a confirmed Republican <coughs> candidate. But is it fair to say that that is what everyone expects, that they expect the Republican Party to, to choose him? Yeah, I mean, no other serious contender has really emerged from the rest of the field, one point, a lot of uh, energy was going behind Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, but he seems to have petered out. Uh, and a lot of people are looking at Nikki Haley and a couple of the other Republicans in the field there. But um, at the moment, it looks like none of them are allowed to vote. So, of course, they haven't even started voting on that yet. So there could always be some kind of a surprise or upset if all that support consolidates around one person. But right now, you've got to say Trump is the prohibitive favourite to win the nomination. What about if he's found guilty in this current trial? What if he's found guilty in some of the other trials that focus on um, the, his attempts to sort of overthrow the election? Would that, you know, disrail his campaign? It remains to be seen. There is some evidence in some of the polling, I think in the New York Times-Siena poll from two days ago, 
the people said that if Trump had been convicted, they wouldn't vote for him, um, even though they would vote for him right now. People aren't very good at predicting how they themselves would behave in the future. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I, I think it does depend on the cases. This current one that he was testifying in just now is really rather technical. Um, it's about, you know, falsifying statements to loan terms. So it's, it's all very vague. I, I doubt that that's going to move public opinion much. Um, the other cases, the stolen documents case and the election interference cases, they might be more impactful. The only thing is that Trump is currently delaying those cases as long as possible to try and make sure that they do not get heard before the election. And it's every possibility that he will succeed in doing that. So, you know, any guilty verdict might not come this side of the election. And if that's the case, then in America, those things just get set aside until after the president steps down. Is it always harder for an incumbent president to sort of seek a second term like President Joe Biden is? No, it's normally much easier. Um, Joe Biden is in a unique situation where it seems like his biggest disadvantage right now from the polls is his age. And obviously, he is old. every president is older <laughs> the second term than they are in their first. But because Biden went in as the oldest president already, and there are Americans who are worried about his age, and that, that seems to be coming up time and again in the polling. Of course, Donald Trump is only a few years younger than Joe Biden, and will be going into his be going into this election at the age that Biden was in 2020. But that seems to bother people rather less um, at the moment. Um, and there are other factors too, despite the fact that all the economic indicators show that the US economy is doing pretty well right now. People don't feel like it's doing well. Um, People are complaining about inflation, even though their pay is rising above inflation. So there's a lot of drags right now on Biden that uh, seem to be setting Trump up into a good place. It's very unfair of me a year out to ask you for a forecast. But if you had to place your chips on anybody, who would it be? So my gut feeling is, is no second acts. Is that in an actual head-to-head um, that Biden would squeak it. Um, unless something happened, and you know the, the world of events out there, um, and that Donald Trump in general benefits from not being too much in the news, um, and the more his voice is heard, the more he's visible, he tends to suffer from that. Um, that said, I can't really ignore the fact that the polls are telling me a different story, um, and and ultimately we're dealing with two men here who are very old, um, both of them, and 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 you know health issues could emerge for either of them that could derail anything. Goodness me, you're right. Anything could happen indeed. And we have uh, seen uh, certainly a very busy uh, newscape over the last 12 months. My goodness me. Uh, Ari Kovler there, US political analyst. Thank you very much indeed for your time this morning. We really appreciate it. Uh, And fascinating to get those insights one year out from the US presidential election. Welcome back to The Agenda. Good to have you with us. And like I said, the next hour is all about living longer. First up, we're going to take a look at a drug that can half the risk of breast cancer in certain high-risk groups. And it's now being offered to women in the UAE as a preventative option. Now, anastrozole, 
she said carefully, has been used for many years to actually treat breast cancer. But it's making headlines this week after recent trials showed that the medicine can reduce the incidence of breast cancer by almost 50% in some postmenopausal women. Now, the medicine's an off-patent drug, so more than one company can make it. And that means it is cheap, as little as 18 fills a day. So just how many women right here in the UAE could it help? And how do we identify those who could benefit? Could you, if you're listening now, could you be one of those women? Should you be asking your doctor for it? Let's find out. Um, because earlier, producer Jennifer Crichton caught up with Dr. Deborah Mukherjee. She's an oncologist at Clemenceau Medical Center, Dubai. And she started by explaining a little bit more about the medication. Anastrozole is a tablet hormone medication. It actually blocks estrogen or female hormones. And it was developed for treating patients with breast cancer who are after the menopause. So post-menopausal, uh, no longer having women who are no longer having their periods. So this has been a drug we've been using for a long time to treat breast cancer and also to prevent breast cancer from coming back in older women who've already had a breast cancer diagnosis. And what the new report about anastrozole is telling us at the moment is that in specific women who may be at high risk of developing breast cancer, who have not necessarily had a diagnosis of precancerous change or any diagnosis of breast cancer, could be helped by this medication to prevent the risk of breast cancer developing in the future. And what sort of success rate are we looking at so far in terms of trialing this as a preventative rather than as a treatment? So as a preventative strategy, we know that the benefits are greater in the women who are at higher risk of developing disease. So in the very highest risk women, and now we're getting better and better at knowing who those ladies are, we can potentially decrease the risk of breast cancer by a half, by 50%, which is really significant. But we do have to weigh that up against the potential side effects of drugs like anastrozole. And one of those side effects can be thinning of the bones or osteoporosis. Also, sometimes these medications can cause joint pains and can be quite difficult to manage in some cases. So it's definitely not a treatment that we'd recommend for everybody. But we would recommend that anyone potentially who has a family history of breast cancer or who'd like to know more about their possible breast cancer risk, in addition to the screening mammograms that we recommend, would be a very good idea to have a talk to their doctor about risk assessment and whether this is something that's potentially a good thing for them. But it's very individual. So the reason that this drug is in the news this week is because it's now been licensed as a preventative in the UK. Have we been using it in such a way for a while in the UAE? So we've been using this drug in the UAE for a long time to uh, prevent and treat breast cancer in patients who've already had a diagnosis of breast cancer. But as a risk reduction strategy, it's not something that's widely used. One of the reasons for that is that we actually don't have a lot of data in our populations in the Middle East. And also our population here in Dubai is very young. So there's a very small proportion of women that this would apply to. Uh, nonetheless, we definitely recommend that we are screening women, that we are educating women about breast cancer awareness. 
and that women who are after the menopause come and talk to us about their specific and personal breast cancer risk. And that is absolutely the most important in women who have a family history of breast cancer. So that's in their mother, their grandmother and auntie. We really want to be discussing risk reduction in women who have that family history. And what other things would put someone at higher risk beyond a a previous diagnosis or a family history? The the genes that are very high risk that people might have heard of, the BRCA1 and the BRCA2, these are pretty uncommon in the the Middle Eastern populations. But certainly in anyone who's got a strong family history of breast or ovarian cancer, it's worth discussing with your doctor whether having genetic testing is the correct thing to do. Uh, There are pros and cons of genetic testing. It's not for everyone, but we can sometimes pick up these high risk genes and we can offer risk reduction surgery in that case. We also have the added benefit that if we pick up a high risk genetic problem in someone who hasn't had children yet, we can actually use a technique to ensure that the children that they do have in the future, 100% do not carry the mutation. So this is a technique which is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. It's done as a type of IVF technique and is widely available worldwide to be able to ensure that high-risk genetic mutations are not passed on. So that's another reason that we should find out about them. And you mentioned if there's any other risk factors for breast cancer developing in older women. Number one is unfortunately getting older. It's definitely more common in older women. The second thing is being overweight We know that that is important when we're talking about breast cancer risk. And more recently, we know that actually alcohol or excess alcohol is one of the risk factors for developing breast cancers. So these are things that apply to women after the menopause. We still have a lot to do to research breast cancer in younger women. I'm fascinated to hear that we now have sort of techniques to prevent these genes being passed on as early as in utero. It sounds as though there are potentially quite a lot of tools that you now have at your disposal that perhaps people might not be aware of. Do you envisage a future where we might not have kind of genetically driven breast cancer? And and where does the drug fit into that picture? Absolutely. And I hope that with the advances in screening and the advances in technology and cancer prevention for women who have high risk genetic problems, this will hopefully be seen less and less in the future. We cannot prevent all of breast cancers, though. And this particular medication, as we mentioned, is only for women who are after the menopause, who don't necessarily have high risk genetic mutations, but could have other factors that are as yet unknown which could increase their risk. And also we do use these medications for women who already have a diagnosis of precancerous change in the breast. And that's often picked up on the screening mammograms. So we usually offer surgery and then uh, women may be offered these hormone medications to prevent future breast cancer occurring. So we're getting much, much better at detecting precancerous change. We're getting much better at preventing this from progressing into uh, an invasive breast cancer. And that's why it's really important that anyone who has a concern about their breast cancer risk really does need to come and have a chat to their doctor about how that can be assessed just for them. 
Dr. Deborah Mukherjee there, an oncologist at the Clomonceau Medical Centre in Dubai, uh, catching up with producer Jennifer Crichton. And that is off the back of uh, news that anastrozole uh, could be used as a preventative option uh, for women at moderate or high risk of breast cancer as a preventative measure. Really interesting stuff there. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, you might have heard just before the break, we were just hearing about how an individual approach to breast cancer is key to tackling the disease. But could taking a similarly person-to-person approach also hold the key to us all living healthier longer lives. Well, longevity medicine is seriously big business. The Bank of America says the industry is already worth 110 billion US dollars and it's growing. But having long been seen as more the sort of territory of Silicon Valley's billionaires, you know, with their fasting and their, um, you know, (laughs) I mean, I read one guy who's basically using the blood from his teenage son to refresh his own uh, stores. There are now sort of proper efforts underway to ensure that longevity research can benefit not just the billionaires, but the masses. Uh, Earlier, I spoke to Lisa Ireland. She's the president and CEO of the non-profit Longevity Science Foundation. And she says accessibility is key. We are working to add years to our life and life to our years. The longevity space has gotten a lot of buzz. With buzz comes some dis and misinformation. But it's also really important for our work that we are available in any of the research we fund is accessible to everyone. We don't want to be the playground for the millionaires. They've got their money that they can go and do, you know, their research and hire their scientists. We're really focused on how we can help people make some changes and modifications to live a healthier life. So if we're all going to live to 80, let's make that life as healthy as we possibly can. If we can live to 90 instead of 80, that's great too. But let's make sure it's healthy lifespan, which is so incredibly important. So I imagine there's lots of different facets to how you're trying to extend our longevity. Can you outline a few of the sort of top methods that you think scientists should be looking at? So one of the key components, which is actually the first funding call that we put out, was in aging clocks. And we all know how old we are because we know what our birth certificate says. But what is our biological age? So I know that I'm 53 because I know when I was born. But if my biomarkers and my biological clock inside says that I'm 58, we've got some work to do. And that's where we become, how can we take those steps? Are those steps in some modifications in diet and exercise? I was thrilled to see that 10,000 steps became 4,000 steps. Because think about our older population, and they can't necessarily get 10,000 steps in, so they don't even try, but they can try for 4,000, and it shows that some activity is better than no activity. Diet modifications, those types of modifications, also in concert with some work that's being done in supplements and work in gene therapy and cell regeneration therapy. So what are we doing and how are we looking at how our cells age and die and how we can really get in there and do some repair work. Almost like you're repairing your car as it gets older. How can we go in and be more proactive and repair our bodies? 
It's really interesting to hear that some of the steps could be taken just on an individual basis. So reducing your weight, for example, does that have a big impact? It does. You know, we hear a lot about intermittent fasting and caloric intake, but it's really figuring out what works best for the individual. And if you are living in a country where the Mediterranean diet is prevalent, then of course that's going to be what you are going to do. Here in America and the States, we have a very high level of caloric intake. Everything is on the masses. We should eat big burgers and fries and, and you know, we need to look at that really individually. How can we make small incremental changes, which could have larger incremental changes as we age? It's fascinating. So take a look at like little smaller meals, more water intake, more steps, more activity, do something every day. How can you figure out your actual body age versus your birth age? So there is a full longevity panel that you can do. And there's companies now that are out there that are starting to do it. So blood tests will give you biomarkers. And, you know, I can't speak enough about how important it is to be having these conversations with your regular doctor. And that goes to the fact of not everyone understands the longevity science, but your doctor is going to understand how can we work together to figure out what these biomarkers are? Can we get your sugar intakes down for, you know, if you have a high risk of diabetes and all of those different pieces, but you have to have these conversations with your doctor and really you have to want to make these small incremental life changes. We all want to live longer. We all want to live well, but we have to figure out today what we can do to help us tomorrow. So how about the refurbishment element of the conversation. For example, I've heard a lot about stem cell research. In fact, we we spoke to a, a doctor just a couple of weeks ago on the program who made a grand announcement. You know, he's he's written a book about stem cell research. His feeling was that in about 10 years that we will be able to use stem cells to regenerate our bodies. Do you think that has legs? I do, and I've seen a lot of the research. I come to the space as a nonprofit expert. So leading this charge of getting people to be educated and getting the word about longevity out to the masses is really a key priority of mine. I always tell the scientists too, what's so important, and I say this every single day, we need to get these conversations out of the lab and into life, out of the classroom and into the conversations. Because a lot of these great inroads in research are happening inside these classrooms and inside these labs, but nobody's talking about it. So we need to share that information. AI is going to have a huge component of this as well. It has the ability to take massive amounts of data and to store the data, regenerate it, and get details of this data out to the researchers, which is going to be tremendously helpful in moving the research forward. So other than stem cell research and stem cell regeneration of cells, what other technologies are these longevity researchers looking at? So there's a lot of work being done in the labs, but they're really having some great research progress with lifespan of mice. And that tends to be something that people are really saying, okay, well, if it's happening here, you know, how can it happen here? There's another great set of research in inflammation. So one of the key components of a shorter, less healthy lifespan is inflammation. And this is a fascinating piece, again, out of the lab, that bats don't show signs of inflammation as they age. Right. So how can we take the research 
and look at what is happening besides as we joke, hanging upside down and sleeping, you know, that way. But how can we take that real true research, dig into that and see what those components are and how can we translate that into humans and figure out how we can help? That's some of the fascinating work. It does feel like lots of scientists are are jumping on board and I suppose they have their own vested interest. They might want to live longer themselves, but there's a bigger story here, isn't there? There is a lot of money to be made for the person who figures out how to make people live longer. Absolutely. And there's a lot of investment being done right now, a lot of VC investment. There's billions of dollars into research that's being given. And I think that at least from all of the researchers I have talked with, they're looking at it from a global perspective. Sure, it would be great to be able to be the person that solves this problem. Those of us in you know my age, 50-ish, are looking at how our parents have aged, how the aging process has happened, what the burden is on the healthcare system, the burden on those that are caregivers. And we want to make that better so that our kids don't have this tremendous burden when those rules are reversed and our kids are taking care of us. So it's not just about living longer, but it is about living better. That's where we use the term health span. So there's lifespan, which is the length of our life, Health span is something that's so incredibly important and something that our foundation really focuses a lot on because nobody wants to cure aging to the fact that we can all live to 100, but we're unhealthy and unhappy from 70 to 100. Then there's no reason to live those 30 extra years. Let's live the best life, healthiest life we can while we have it. Lisa Island there, president and CEO of the nonprofit Longevity Science Foundation. I don't know about you, but I was certainly taking notes on how to live longer. Great to hear from her. Great to have her here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, an ominous new climate report is suggesting that it is virtually certain that 2023 will be the warmest on record. That is according to new data, and the prediction follows exceptionally high October temperatures. Plus, of course, I mean, now we've seen about 10 months worth of deadly heat waves, floods, and fires. And that comes, that report at least, comes as the British heir to the throne, Prince William, has been handing out prizes to groups aiming to combat global warming and protect the planet. They are some serious cash prizes as well. We're talking about nearly 5 million dirhams. Uh, And Prince William is in Singapore for this annual Earthshot Awards ceremony. It is the first to be held in Asia. The focus of my visit this week is how we collectively overcome our planet's greatest environmental challenges. Like all initiatives created through the Royal Foundation, United for Wildlife and the Earthshot Prize are underpinned by finding innovative solutions to some of the world's most pressing issues. Now, we might not have one of our reporters on the ground in Singapore, but we do have someone from Dubai on the ground. A friend of the show, Tom Hudson, who's the managing director of Kestrel, is there. And he sent us this message explaining the link between the Earthshot Prize and the UAE. Yes, I've been here for Prince William's Earthshot Prize. Of course, DP World was a founding partner and had supported a lot of the winners on their expansion into the Middle East and setting up in Dubai. And generally, everyone is looking forward to coming to COP28 at the end of the month. 
And the winners this year include an agri-tech startup that helps female farmers in India to cut food waste. They're using solar-powered dehydration equipment to do that. Uh, it's called, uh, and then there was another one called Bumitra. They're a firm that helps farmers improve their soil and also increase their income through carbon credits. They were named the winner of the Fix Our Climate Prize. Adit Murthy, who is the startup's founder and CEO, explain to us why that's important. Farmers around the world are faced with a dual crisis of both exacerbating climate change makes their yields more unpredictable, while also there's severe soil degradation around the world due to unsustainable farming practices, which need to desperately be reversed because farmers make the food that we eat. And it's necessary for planetary health and also for our health and our farmers continue to do the great job that they are doing. Meanwhile, Achion Andina, uh, which is a grassroots community-based initiative working across South America to protect native forest ecosystems, was another winner. One of the founders of that organization, Florent Kayser, from the Global Forest Generation, sent us this message. To all our wonderful friends and colleagues traveling to Dubai very soon for the Climate Change Cup, we have an urgent message. In everything you do, in everybody you talk to, please focus on one thing, action, action, action. The time is over for talks. We need to get huge solutions in place right now to scale our collective action to restore Mother Earth. We look forward to seeing you in Dubai. We wish you all the very best. Never forget our collective mission. It's really interesting because you can hear there that the momentum in the climate community is very much gearing up for COP28 in Dubai. So while this is a a very prestigious award ceremony that's going on in Singapore, everyone is focused on Dubai, you know, thousands of miles away. But that is just how big these climate talks are going to be. It is being described uh, as the most important COP since Paris. Uh, We will be getting the results of the global stock take, which is essentially when every single country uh, admits, and it is sort of admitting, to, you know, their carbon output status. And then there is a requirement or a hoped for requirement that they will then promise to make certain cuts. So obviously everyone looking to the end of November, the end of this month uh, for that COP28 summit. But Prince William was actually looking even further ahead to 2030. And what's really interesting is um, he has a real sense of hope. Have a listen to this. We'll be able to look the next generation in the eye in 2030 and say we've started to turn the dial. Climate anxiety will no longer be something that the next generation fear. We'll start to see visible improvement in our coastlines, in our oceans. We'll start to see transportation changing. We'll start to see policy shifts. We'll start to see governments being incredibly engaged and a green sector starting to appear, where green solutions, we've heard about the finance this morning, about how difficult it is to put money into Uh, this space, that will become so much easier. Climate finance, of course, set to be a major topic at this year's COP28. Uh, But really interesting to hear there from Prince William. And huge thanks uh, to Tom Hudson for being our roving reporter over in Singapore. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. 
I've actually got lots of questions coming in about internships and it's made me realise that it might be we might be overdue a lawyer and a phone-in. Uh, so we might do that later on this week. But please do keep your comments coming about internships that you have done in the past. Go down memory lane, share it with me. Now, I'm going to be joined on the line next by the fabulous Chris McCarty, of course, our head of sports. And I can't let you join us, Chris, without asking you whether you ever did an internship. I did. Good morning, Georgia. Good morning. Uh, good morning to our listeners. Uh, yes, I did. I, I popped on down to the big smoke of London. I did a six-week unpaid, would you believe it, unpaid internship down in London for Sport Magazine. Any UK listeners, any Londoners may remember, there was a free magazine that was handed out in the tube stations, etc., once a week in and around London. And yeah, I spent six weeks there, learned an awful lot, and wasn't paid a single penny. <laughs> Not that I was bitter about that. It was the kind of things that you had to do back then, uh, simply to give yourself a bit of experience, a bit of exposure to then help you on your merry way. So my first internship was with Pat Sharp on Heart 106.2. And I did make the tea. That was quite literally my job, was to make him tea and like get the pages that he printed off the photocopier. And I so did learn... When you say Pat Sharp, you mean Pat Sharp of Funhouse fame. Yeah, I do. That's quite niche. I am so jealous. I'm so jealous. Right he, was, he was a very handsome man. I mean, I was only about 18 or 19. He seemed ancient to me. He was probably did, 35. Did the twins, were the twins, did they work with him on radio as much as they did on the Funhouse? No, no, it was just Pat. It was just Pat, mostly playing music. And occasionally I'd have to find out, you know, what were the top 10 <laughs> movies for that week. That was my research. Brilliant. So, yeah. I had the experience of working for a sports magazine. You worked for the legendary Pat Sharp. (laughs) Someone got the role deal there, and it wasn't you. I wonder if he'd still... No, he wouldn't remember. OK, let's, uh, let's turn our attention towards sport. I had a massive crush on him. He could, I don't think he even knew who I was. He just praised me. For, I, apparently, I made very good coffee. So there you go. OK, that's good. You, you take the wins in life. That's definitely a win. Yeah, yeah. Pat Sharp is telling you, you make a good cup of coffee. Yeah. Take that, Georgia. You run with that. Yeah, yeah. He once told Ben Elton I made a, a great... I was offering coffee and Ben Elton was prevaricating and, and, and Pat Sharp said, no, no, she does make a good cup of coffee. How's things gone up in the world, Georgia? Ah, uh, just about. Let's start with cricket before I get lost in my memory lane. Uh, and innings for the ages yesterday. Glenn Maxwell, yeah. my goodness me. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Glenn Maxwell is the toast of world cricket today. He battled through injury. He hit a quite sensational double century. Australia beating Afghanistan. Australia reaching the World Cup semi-finals. But the story belongs to Glenn Maxwell. He arrived at the crease to face a hat-trick ball. He saw off that ball. Australia were rocking at this point. 49 for four. They then slumped to 91 for seven. They were chasing, lest we forget, 292 in Mumbai for victory. He was then dropped twice. He was struggling with his back injury. He could barely run. He could barely move his feet, for goodness sake. Cramps set in, but he hit one of the all-time great innings. A double century. He finished with 201 not out. He shared, what about this for a start? He shared an eight-wicket stand with the captain, Pat Cummins, of 202. Now, Pat Cummins only equated for 12 of those runs. He made 190 himself. Australia winning with 19 balls to spare. And rightly, it has been hailed, if not the greatest ODI innings of all time, 
it's got to be right up there. I doff my cap this morning to Glenn Maxwell. Yeah, that truly does sound historic. And we've got more, yet more action today, haven't we? Yeah, the group stage is never ending. I know you're fed up of it by now, and I must admit, I'm getting that way as well. It's a bit of a dead rubber. Well, it's not a bit of a dead rubber. It is a dead rubber. Uh, bringing up the rear in this Cricket World Cup is England. Uh, sorry to say that, Georgia, although I'm not really. They've won one of their six matches, that, uh, seven matches, sorry, one win, six defeats. Uh, they take on the Dutch. That won't be easy for England. They have been so abject in this Cricket World Cup. They can't take anything for granted. So it's the English against the Dutch at one off at 12.30 a little later this afternoon. We've also got a spot of UEFA Champions League. Um, that was last night, though. It was last night. Yeah. Last night and tonight. So you had your first round of fixtures last night against the big storyline, Manchester City. Not really a storyline now, but they beat young boys of Switzerland by three goals to nil. They're the first side to qualify for the knockout stages this season. And the headline grabber is Erling Haaland, once again, two goals last night. He's now got 39 Champions League goals in just 34 appearances. Still only 23 years of age. He is already 20th in the all-time list of goal scorers in the UEFA Champions League. That boy, I mean, the world's his oyster. He can do whatever he wants in the world of football. Other victories last night. Atletico Madrid beat Celtic by six goals to nil. Celtic down to 10 men early on that one. Newcastle beaten over in Germany by Borussia Dortmund. AC Milan victorious 2-1 over PSG against the big uh, shock result of the night. Barcelona falling to a 1-0 defeat to Ukrainian side Shakhtar Donetsk. Of course, that one is played in neutral territory given what's going on in the country of Ukraine. So that one was over in Germany, but Barcelona beaten by Shakhtar. Didn't see that one coming. But yeah, busy night last night and there's a busy night tonight. I'll be all eyes. We'll be on Copenhagen for myself. It's FC Copenhagen taking on Man United. That one, from a personal standpoint, is the big one. That one off at midnight. Chris McCarty, a late night for you and we're looking forward to hearing more from you this afternoon on Off Script. It is your drive time show from 5 until 8pm. Make sure you tune in uh, to Chris, Robbie and Sonal. Chris McCarty, though, thank you very much indeed. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.